We turn this morning to Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 9. Matthew 9, 9 through 13 this morning. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto the disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn. It's a command, by the way. Go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Father, we would quiet our hearts before you once again, before we turn our attention and our minds to the text, and consider the testimony of Matthew in his own words. What he does tell us is quite Striking. What he doesn't tell us is quite striking. So many things that Matthew might have said are not said. So many things that are said take our minds in a direction that we would not expect. Nonetheless, we are confronted with a text in which we see what Jesus saw, and that Jesus saw Matthew. And then we get to see what the Pharisees saw, and what they saw was religious conflict and complexity. And so we pray today that you would warm our hearts as we think and work with the reality of exactly what it is that Jesus sees and the calling of the Lord Jesus upon our lives by your good hand. Thank you for the opportunity this morning. We ask your blessing upon us. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. In the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus, prayed the night before crucifixion, as recorded in John 17, the inner circle of the disciples were the special focus of the Lord's attention and desire before the throne of God. Jesus prayed for those men and the terminology that the Lord uses is both profound and striking. We hear in John 17 the Lord Jesus speak to God the Father 
of those inner circle of men that were, quote, given to Christ by the Father. Those 11 apostles, because number 12 had left to betray the Lord, the 11 apostles who accompanied the Lord Jesus into the Garden of Pressing, the Garden of Gethsemane, were treated to the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer as he prayed it, not the one that we recently studied in Matthew 5 to 7. And in that prayer, Jesus thanks the Father for the men, for the men that God the Father had given to him. And in fact, the name Matthew means the gift of Yahweh. Matthew means, the name Matthew means the gift of Yahweh. The gospel writer Mark, John Mark, tells us that the birth name of Matthew was Levi, the son of Elpheus. And yet when Matthew tells his own story of redemption and calling, he uses the name that we highly suspect the Lord himself gave to him. For Matthew, at the receipt of custom, was a gift from God the Father to God the Son. Matthew is the gift from God to the Lord Jesus. We know for sure that Matthew was one of the selected men given by God the Father to God the Son as one of the Lord's own apostles. And I don't know if you thought much about that, but Paul says in Ephesians that the apostles were gifts to the church. True. But the apostles were first and foremost gifts to Christ himself. They were the gift of God to the Son of God and then to the church for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. It is a profound understatement to say that Matthew was unlikely to ever be an apostle of Christ. And in fact, we have more humanly likely men to be apostles interacting with Jesus in the aftermath of Levi's calling. And of course, those men likely to be called along the human lines of thinking were indeed called Pharisees. Matthew would be the most unlikely man to be called. And that's part of the nuance of this particular uh, testimony, biographical testimony uh, from Matthew, about Matthew, as driven by the Spirit of God. Now, Matthew was a tax farmer. Uh, that's the best way that I know to state his occupation. Uh, he was a tax farmer. He was a Jewish publican authorized by the Romans to collect 
required taxes and fees. That's not the farming part. He was authorized by Rome to collect the Roman required taxes and fees along with whatever facilitation charges he desired from his own country mind. That's the farming part. That's the profit part. That's, uh, that's taking the opportunity to pad your own pockets. And publicans were known to be excellent at padding their own pocketbooks. To say that Matthew was unlikely uh, is, uh, is likewise to say that Matthew was widely disliked by everyone. I mean everyone. The fact that he personally sat in the custom office or booth, verse 9, tells us that Matthew was of that tax farming variety that had unusually wide legal power to levy fees indiscriminately and, uh, and was often engaged in the aspect of placing new taxes on the spot for a thing uh, that was nowhere written in law. And so it'd be like today uh, uh, saying to the congregation, any man that came today with a necktie on, uh, 20 bucks at the door when you leave, or we'll lock you in the dungeon of the First Baptist Church of Elto for the week. Uh, that would be tax farming. That would just be the indiscriminate picking out of a thing and saying anybody that, uh, that uh, wears a tie today uh, pays, uh, pays a fee uh, or uh, goes to the dungeon for the week. And uh, it's at the, at the discrimination of the tax farmer. Well, that wouldn't be fair, and, uh, and you and I would not like that at all, especially those of us that are wearing uh, one of those neckties this morning. Uh, Matthew, along with his publican buddies, uh, would have been barred from the local synagogue. Nobody ever said to Matthew, want to go to church? Well, first of all, there wasn't any church. But the closest thing they had to church was the synagogue, and nobody ever said to Matthew, you want to go to the synagogue? No, he wasn't allowed to go. He was so hated by the Jewish community, his community, he's Jewish, but he's so hated by the Jewish community. And think about a guy named Levi who can't go to synagogue. Just think about that. When the tribe of Levi is the, is the tribe that's ordained by God to facilitate uh, religious things among the people of Israel. And yet not Matthew, because he's a, he's a tax farmer. And so uh, uh, his publican buddies, along with Matthew, barred from the synagogue, and they were ranked by the scribes and the Pharisees with robbers and prostitutes. That's how highly they were considered to be uh, in, the, in the structure of the culture, uh, along with robbers and women of ill repute. There's little doubt that Matthew had repeated interactions with the Lord Jesus and was eyewitness to several of the things that the Lord did in Capernaum. Talk about a hot spot to be running the tax farming booth. Matthew was in the, in the best location for that business 
uh, right by the seashore in Capernaum. And thereby he could see when the boats were coming in and could go down there and snoop and see, and we'll tax that and we'll tax that and we'll, ta we'll take some extra tax for that. And the people just cringed when they saw that guy coming towards their boat or towards their caravan, for there was a major highway that also ran through that territory, and Matthew would have had his prongs into it all, being the tax farmer, at least one of them, in the city center of Capernaum. Now, Matthew tells his own story, briefly, I might add, to forward our understanding of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. And once again, we find our way into the heart of the matter by the question that was asked and recorded. Verse 11, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? Now Matthew's own testimony answers that question quite profoundly. But once again, it's a question that leads us to the heart of the matter. Just like back in chapter 8, verse 27, it was the question of the disciples in the ship after the storm. What manner of man is this that led us to the heart of the matter concerning the person and mission of Christ? And then in verse 29, it was the question of demons that lead us right back to the heart of the matter concerning the person and the mission of Christ in the first advent. And then again, Christ's own question, chapter 9, verse 5. Jesus saying, what's easier for me to say? Uh, your sins be forgiven, which I've already said, or rise, take up your bed and walk. And that question defines the person and the mission of Christ. And now once again, verse 11, the Pharisees have a question. They ask it to the disciples, but Jesus is the one that answers their question, and the question leads us to the heart of the matter. Why, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? As one of those publicans, who better to tell us in words and deeds the reality of Jesus the Christ. The other great, unlikely, transformed by the calling of Christ in the New Testament summarized the truth we find here with these words. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The grace of God and the mission of Christ is directed towards sinners. That is the unbelievable, unmistakable truth of this little episode in which Matthew gives his personal testimony. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Matthew would have said, of whom I am chief. Paul did say, of whom I am chief. Now that brings us this morning to the first thing that we would point out by way of 
emphasis, and that is that Matthew himself is an example of the grace of God and the mission of Christ to sinners. I call your attention to that word, verse 9, saw. Jesus saw a man. Well, duh! Jesus was seeing a lot of men and a lot of people as he approached the, the custom tax farming booth on that day. But Jesus saw Matthew. What Jesus saw was not attractive nor endearing to the common eyes of men. Jesus would have seen uh, the sinfulness of Levi, to be sure, in full degree and fact. Yet Jesus saw Matthew. Ready? Jesus saw Matthew as one given to him of God the Father. And thereby Jesus calls out to that gift of God the Father, saying, follow me. And he did. He just did. He just did. Matthew, upon that invitational imperative, obeyed the call of Christ. Unlikely as he was, unloving as he was, unloved as he was. Yet he, Matthew, was the gift of God the Father to God the Son. The modern commentator MacArthur says that of all the disciples, Matthew doubtlessly made the greatest sacrifice of material possessions by following the Lord. We often think about Peter, who we know had his own shipping and, and fishing business. But uh, Matthew, sitting where he sat, having unlimited resources at his disposal to tax whatever goods were passing through the area, uh, Matthew had phenomenal access to resources, and thereby MacArthur is likely correct when he says that of all the 11 that were called of the Lord and followed him and remained apostles of the Lord uh, out of uh, the period from the death uh, and, uh, and, uh, and resurrection and ascension, that of those apostles that Matthew likely made the greatest sacrifice of material possessions to follow the Lord Jesus as he did. Worsby says that Matthew first opened his heart to Christ and then he opened his home. Now the thing that struck me about the fact that Matthew opens his home to the Lord after he uh, uh, obeys the Lord in following the Lord is that uh, if you are scum, you always have friends. If you are scum, you always have friends because birds of a feather flock together. And so when Matthew, who is considered in that area to be the scum of the community, can't go to synagogue, 
Can't do what Jewish people do usually. Oh, that guy's a traitor. He, he, he takes for the Romans and then he keeps for himself. Hated. Scum. But the scum has friends. And so when Mr. Scumbag, Matthew, when Mr. Scumbag, uh, you know, has a banquet and Jesus and the disciples say, all the scummy people come because scum has friends. And the place is filled with publicans and sinners. All the lowlifes come to the banquet and they sit down with the Lord Jesus and his disciples. All Matthew's friends were social outcasts. The birds of Matthew's feather gathered together were all of the overt sinful type. One of the things that I learned in my first stint in biblical education, one of the things that I learned is that there's a phenomenal difference between the students that came to Bible college from a public school and the students that came to Bible college from a Christian school. And uh, the difference was is that the, uh, the students who came from the public school uh, tended to be more overt in their violation of the rules. The students who came from the public school were overt sinners. Uh, the, the students who came from the Christian school were sneaky sinners. They sinned just as much and usually more but they always knew how to work the system. And so actually they were perceived by the professors as being wonderful, wonderful, wonderful students. But from the perspective of the dean of students, they were a pain. And you know where. Uh, they, uh, they troubled the dean of students because they were such sneaky sinners. Uh, it is quite clear in this passage that the Lord... Uh, appreciated uh, the overt sinner over the sneaker sinner. Now, he'll say both, but the overt sinner is what Matthew was and Matthew's friends were, and it is absolutely clear that Jesus was very comfortable in the midst of those overt sinners. When Matthew opened his home for a goodbye banquet, the place was filled with fellow publicans and sinners. Jesus, the heaven-sent friend of sinners, sat in their midst. He who knew no sin sat in the company of Matthew's sinful buddies. And religion will not have that. But if God had decided not to have that, nobody would be saved. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now just think about Matthew writing this out. 
writing this out is driven by the Holy Spirit of God to do so. <laughs> you know, I don't think he was surprised that the Spirit of God would prompt him to write about what happened in the boat. I don't think he was surprised to have the Spirit of God prompt him to write about what happened with the encounter of the demonic. I don't think that Matthew was at all surprised when the Spirit of God prompted him to write of the Lord telling the man after forgiving his sins to rise, take up his bed, and walk. But I would guess that Matthew was a little bit surprised when the Spirit of God said, okay, Matthew, it's time for you to tell your own story. He is one of those authorized to write the truth of the gospel for us. He depicts the Lord out of glory as in the midst of sinners, such as he knew himself for sure to be. He will go on to depict for us this Lord out of glory more than sitting with sinners, but dying for sinners, such as they were and such as we are. You can miss God's grace by thinking yourself good. You can miss God's grace by thinking yourself good. But it is hard to miss an opportunity to receive the grace of God if you know yourself to be a scumbag, if you know yourself to be sinful. Matthew himself is a marvelous example of the grace of God and the mission of the Lord Jesus, First Advent. Secondly, the obvious estrangement of the Pharisees underscores the grace of God and the mission of Christ to sinners. The word estranged means removed from customary association. Estranged. Removed from customary association. It fits the Pharisees in that they, as religious men and leaders, ought to have reflected the heart of God for sinners, but of course they did not because, in fact, though religious, their hearts were estranged from God. Estranged. They were removed in heart from the customary association of a person rightly related to God. As surely as Matthew was blessed in this little biographical vignette, as reported, the Pharisees were bugged. Verse 11. They're offended that Jesus would preach righteousness as they'd heard him preach and then associate with the obvious 
on righteous ones. Preach righteousness, but associate with sinners to be known as the friend of sinners. I find myself agreeing with the commentators that the question asked to the Lord's followers was not sincere. The Pharisees, even at this early stage, were venting their growing hostilities. Blinded by their religious embrace, these Pharisees believed themselves to be rightly moral and separate from sinners. They saw nothing but good in themselves and nothing good in others who were unlike them including, of course, the Lord Jesus himself. And there's a lot of people like that who see nothing but good in themselves, and yet really nothing good in others who are unlike them, including the Lord Jesus. In other words, they were self-approving men, pleased and proud of themselves, who thought they had no need of God's forgiveness. They likewise thought that Matthew and his crowd were undeserving of God's forgiveness. And we say that at least they were right about that one. They did believe that people like Matthew didn't deserve God's grace, amazing grace. Uh, they believed that uh, people like Matthew didn't deserve a haven of rest. As our lady sang this morning. And of course that'd be true. Matthew didn't deserve grace. You can't deserve grace. Uh, you can't deserve grace. The problem with the Pharisees is that they saw themselves as deserving the attention and care of the Lord Jesus, and they saw Matthew and his scum buddies as undeserving. And that's where their perspective went hellish. Because they saw in themselves nothing but good. And they saw nothing good in others, and that included the Lord himself. That brings us to number three, the exhortation of the Lord Jesus on this occasion certainly clarifies the grace of God and the mission of Christ to sinners. Look at what Jesus said uh, to the uh, Pharisees. First of all, note that the Lord Jesus answered the question that was directed to the disciples. The Pharisees asked the disciples. They did not ask the Lord. They asked the disciples. Nonetheless, the Lord answered first with a simple illustration. Verse 12, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Everybody here understands that illustration. I don't know that we need to work it even for a 30-second a period of time because pretty evident, you feel good, you don't go to the doctor. 
that the doctor only sees you when you don't feel good or when your insurance company tells you or somebody says to you, it's time for you to go, it's your yearly checkup. And even that causes my blood pressure to rise. I, uh, I have to go into the doctor with my whole list of blood pressure readings because every time I go there, I act like a sinner and I, I, I demonstrate myself as nervous to have the doctor cuff me up and do his thing to me. I just, the thought of that little guy poking on me and pressing on me, I, I just want to press him back. And I don't need a needle to do it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm just, I just don't like it. I don't like it. I never liked it. I don't like it. And if you don't like it, I, I can feel for you. Listen. If you're sick, you go to the doctor. If you're not sick, you're not going there. When the doctor says to me, I haven't seen you since last year, thank the Lord for that. I never feel bad about not going to see him. Jesus said to explain why he sits among the overt sinners. They know they're sick. They know they're sick. They know they're sick. It's so wonderful for sick people to know they're sick. One of the diseases that we have come to hold in contempt is that silent killer that creeps up within you and you don't know for the longest time that you're sick until it manifests itself. And then oftentimes, it's too late. But here are overt sinners who know, they know, they are convinced in themselves of their sin. And the Lord who came to save sinners by dying for sinners and beating death and sin uh, by coming out of the grave and ascending to be at the right hand of the Father. Uh, that Lord of ours loved to sit among those who knew why he came to this earth. They fulfilled in him that glorious sense of And imagine that the Lord Jesus, as he sat there in that room of sinners, thought more than once, it's for you, dear one, I've come to die. It's for you, dear one, I've come to die. It's for you, dear one, I've come to die. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Now, Jesus took the Pharisees at their own words and their own opinion of self. He did not say that they were spiritually healthy, but that they possessed no recognition of the need of a spiritual doctor of his sort. Be reminded that the Lord told the crowd in the manifesto that except their righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, they would not even enter the kingdom being offered to them. His illustrative explanation is followed by a personalized imperative to the Pharisees. 
he said to them, Go ye and learn the particular meaning of Hosea 6.6. Go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. That is a quote from Hosea 6.6. Jesus pointed them to Hosea 6.6. In the Old Testament book, we come to better understand and appreciate the heartbeat of thrice holy God in heaven for wayward people. The man of God named Hosea was married to a wayward woman. I refer to Hosea as Holy Hosea. I refer to his wife as Gookie Gomer. Holy Hosea was married to Gookie Gomer. Old Testament Israel's on Faithfulness to God was like Gookie Gomer. God commands Hosea to be an emblem, to be an illustration, to be a symbol of his own love for wayward Israel. And Hosea is told to go and love and take back Gookie Gomer out of all her gookiness. The lesson of Hosea 6.6 is that God is never pleased by religious ritual and perfunctory participation. God is pleased by a heart first for God, and then for others. Hosea 6.6 exposes and indicts the Pharisees in their cold embrace of activity under the law. God says he hates such cold and external activity. And then, of course, the Lord made and Matthew recorded the statement Jesus made, which again is somewhat of a mission statement. Jesus said, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Of course, if Jesus had come, to call the righteous, there wouldn't be any. There are none righteous. No, not one. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. His mission was to save sinners. His mission in this moment of time was to call upon sinners to repent. It's an amazing thing to think about. But if you say to God, I'm okay, God will say, okay. But if you ever say to God, Father, I am not okay, God will say, come here. I will help you. I will save you. I will keep you. 
Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The salvation of God is for the spiritually sick who know they need to be made right by God, for God. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Father, this morning we pause before you with a clear vision of the person and the mission of Jesus Christ. And now as we sing our song in conclusion of this hour, drive it to the heart and mind of each believer for the purpose of thanksgiving into the heart and life of every sinner for thy purpose and salvation. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.